0: Good morning, church. I always feel like dancing up here when it's going on. <laughs> Trust you're well. Welcome to Union Chapel uh, this morning, 1130 service. Welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're joining us online, thrilled that you've joined us. Welcome. Glad you're, you're with us. Today's week 28 in the story. Question, how many of you are all the way caught up? All the way caught up? to? T- That's pretty good. Pretty strong. A little weak over in this section over here, but... <laughs> really impressive. So well done with that. Today we want to talk about new beginnings. This is the book of Acts. We begin the fourth movement of five movements. If, if you understand these five movements, you'll have a, a good overview of the whole Bible. The first movement was early creation. We have there a man and a woman in a, in a paradise, a place called Eden, uh, sin entered the world, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, that's the first movement. The second movement is the nation of Israel. God called a guy named Abraham out of the air of Chaldeas, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, then Moses, then Joshua, then came the kings, and then the, the judges. Along the way, there were priests and prophets, and this was the nation of Israel, the story of God. Then we moved into the New Testament and the story of Jesus. This is the third movement. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus. And today, we enter into the fourth movement, which is the story of the church, the New Testament church, and we will conclude in a few weeks with heaven all the way to the book of Revelation and the fifth movement. So we have the fall, the flood, we have the nation of Israel, we have the story of Jesus, we have the story of the church, and then back to paradise, a place called heaven. These are the five movements. And I I just appreciate so much your keeping up with the story. Today I want to start with a personal confession. Uh, this will be devastating to some of you, and I'm sorry to have to do it to you. I don't like country music. <laughs> I know. I'm not claiming any cultural superiority, in making that declaration. Um. I know that there are people in this room watching online who are my intellectual and cultural superiors who love country music. I didn't grow up with country music. I believe it's an acquired taste. Um, I'm more of an old-time rock and roller. Um, I grew up on the Beatles, Um, you know, Chicago, Elvis. I mention Elvis because Elvis and I share a birthday. Uh, January the 8th is Elvis' birthday. He's exactly 20 years older than me. So wherever Elvis is in the world, he is 87 years old today. I get birthday cards from five or six people every year because they are Elvis fans. They know when it's Elvis's ver- birthday. They don't remember my birthday, but they know it's Elvis' birthday. And so they send me birthday cards because Elvis isn't available. And so they send me birthday cards. It has Elvis on the, on the card. Inevitably. I feel very special. So Elvis and I, you know, that's my claim to fame right there. Same birthday as Elvis. Thank you very much. (laughs) I will admit, however, that some country stars like Shania Twain and Faith Hill do grab my attention. It is not, however, because of their music. I also like jazz. I like bluegrass you know, in small amounts. I like classical music very much. I love Mozart. Uh, You may not know this, but it's been scientifically measured that for a short period of time, a matter of a few hours, a human being's IQ will go up several points after listening to Mozart. If I was still matriculating at the university and there was an exam coming up, I would study for the exam, listen to Mozart, and then go take the exam. You know, you got a few hours before you go back to Dahl after you listen to Mozart. (laughs) Crossover is difficult. For example, when Willie Nelson sings Somewhere Over the Rainbow, it will sound country. Can't help it. If the London Philharmonic played the Red River Valley, it would have a symphonic sound to it. I believe that a great deal of what we think is essence or substance is actually just style. You know, obviously I'm putting it in the genre of music right now, but the question is what really makes country music country. Is it the words, you know, about dogs and pickups and broken love and fried chicken? <laughs> or is it about style? My favorite lyric in a country song, this is not a not a popular current song, but the favorite lyric that I've ever heard in a country song is about broken love and the and the and the repeating phrase, the lyric is, if you're going to leave me, walk out the door backwards so it looks like you're coming in. <laughs> that one always makes me cry. It is just, I mean, that's, that's as good a lyric as you can write right there. It's all good. And so we ask the question, what does it mean in the context of the book of Acts and the new beginning of the New Testament church? What does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? What does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? I mean, you may confuse with other Christians some of the signs and symbols and activities and manifestations of spirit-filled, which I think may be more more style rather than essence and foundational. Let me just also remind you that the book of Acts is more than historical. It is historical. But it's more than that. It's, it's more than a museum piece. Too many, far too many Christians in today's world see the, the book of Acts just like they would when they walk into a, a museum of history. You know, there's a tin cup that Abraham Lincoln drank from when he was a boy. And we go, wow. The book of Acts is not like that. The book of Acts is actually an open-ended invitation, if you will, to find out who we are and what we are supposed to be. In the Christian faith. When you open to the book of Acts, your Bible will often say the acts of the apostles, or you might see the acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, which is it? The acts of the apostles or the acts of the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes, it is both. The Holy Spirit at work in this primitive New Testament first century church. And I would submit to you that there's never been a time when the church needs to be more authentic, more spiritual, spirit-filled than it is right now. This is a moment in history where there needs to be light empowered by God's presence. Would you agree? That's where an amen goes in the sermon. Come on. So what does the real church look like? What makes it church? If we answer this question based on cultural issues or style, you know, worship style, dress code, translation of the Bible, certain music, then we're, then we're not really going to get to the substance or the essence. So what is the church? From the book of Acts and this, this high-level overview, I, let me draw three things, three ideas out of it that might be helpful to, for our definition. It's on your outline. Here's the first thing. The church is supernatural both in origin and in function. Supernatural. The church is a supernatural invention that runs on supernatural power. Let me say more. We need to learn this lesson, especially in times when the culture around us is so in need of light and hope and meaning. It's especially true in moments like these when the church seems to be floundering. Most Protestant churches across America and various parts of the Western world right now are struggling. COVID has revealed to us really an essential understanding of the strength and vitality of the church and it's not it's not looking good. Several weeks ago in the context of the story, I, I talked about the trend that we are seeing where people are leaving the faith. Christians are deconstructing their faith and walking away from Christianity. And in the context of that sermon, I made it clear that here at Union Chapel at least, we are not playing along with that trend. We're not we're we're not in the game We're not interested in playing it. We're not impressed with it. We're not impressed that it's become popular to deconstruct your faith and go to some other faith or leave spirituality altogether. I don't think it's impressive. I don't don't care that it's popular. I'm not playing along. Not playing along. And when I announced that at Union Chapel, folks responded to that enthusiastically. And let me just say that year over year at Union Chapel, you don't know this. We don't talk about these things. We just don't. But we are 30% in higher attendance than we were a year ago this same time. 30% more people are attending our church. Our income is up 30% year over year. That's remarkable, isn't it? Under the circumstances. So we're we're not in the game, we're not playing along, we're not we're not questioning our faith, we're not giving up, we're not deconstructing, we're not walking away, we're not diminished. We, we have our eyes wide open. We understand the challenges in front of us. We see them more as opportunities. And we're going to go for Jesus' sake in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we do. And so that's where we are. <laughs> Along the way, we should, we should continue to remind ourselves that we don't have what it takes to do this. We're not smart enough, capable enough, wise enough, educated enough, strong enough, to do this on our own, and neither are you as an individual believer. Have what it takes to live a victorious Christian life all the way to the finish line. We just don't have what what we need. That's why we constantly should remind ourselves that God has promised His Holy Spirit to lead us into truth, to comfort us, to guide us, to empower us, to make us whole, and this is the work of the holy spirit in our lives and we are dependent upon him as a leader in the church listen i know it's possible to run run hard run run a good distance run run strong for a long time in your own power i know it's possible because i've seen me attempt it and i don't recommend it no one and and you and you are no exception and we are no exception together None of us will ever finish well in our own strength, no matter how strong we might think we are. We need God's presence and power. People are giving up, as I mentioned, deconstructing their faith, walking away from Christianity. Pastors are leaving, leaving Christian churches in record numbers. Young pastors just throwing up their hands and giving up. Older pastors who have come to a place, maybe they're old enough to retire. I mean, they've just, they just given up. I've had conversations with these guys. I know one of the reasons why this is happening, one of the reasons is because there is this, this incomprehensible pace of change happening in our culture right now. You, you literally can't get your mind around it. So much change, so quickly, values and traditions and institutions and and the, the kinds of things that of prior generations see as stable and foundational to culture, the fabric of society now unraveling just so quickly before our eyes. And it's, it's, it's it shook up the world, and it's it's changing so fast that it's hard to get your mind around, what is the application of the gospel in this context? Okay, we figured that out today. And, oh, it's changed. Here's an, Here's another complexity the next day. And so it's very, very difficult. But all of that should not keep us from this fundamental reality that the church of Jesus Christ was birthed in a supernatural move of the Holy Spirit and has been sustained now for 2,000 years by the presence, person, and work of the Holy Spirit. And we can depend on the Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom we need, the insight we need, the strategies we need, and the power we need to take the next steps in a, in a successful way. So it, it is a supernatural thing. Let me put it on the, on the screen. The church is a supernatural invention that runs on supernatural power. Peter and John were walking in Jerusalem one day up to the gate Beautiful. They saw a man there who was lame and begging. This is in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. And he's begging. And he's, these are two fresh guys. And this guy stays alive by begging. He's pitiful in his handicapped condition. And he begs, what we know Peter and John did was, look, we don't have any money, they said to him, but what we do have, we'll give you. It's an interesting clarification. Before they say those words to this man, Peter says to him, we don't know if he bent down, knelt down, tried to get at eye level with this guy, or he just stood up with his chest out and said in great confidence, He said to this lame man, look at us. Look at us. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What does he mean by that? He says, look at us. And we don't know why he said it, but he did to get their attention. And then they they pronounce healing on this man, and, and he's miraculously healed the sanhedrin who are the phd's theologians of the day they're upset by this activity it's drawing attention away from their power and so they bring peter and john in front of them and they seek to threaten and intimidate them in the text it says these are not rabbis these aren't these aren't learned men they're pathetic fishermen so they disdain them they look down at them cuz these guys are just average folks they still stink they smell of fish and and so they're not respected They get finished scolding them and threatening them, and they turn them loose. And then Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Sanhedrin, we know what they said about them. And this is what they said, and I quote, They saw that they were ignorant and unlearned. Ignorant and unlearned. Then they added, but noted that they had been with Jesus. That should have tipped them off. But it didn't. And so they see them as ignorant and unlearned. And yet... They didn't have a formal education, but between them, they wrote 1 and 2 Peter of the New Testament, First and Second and 3 John of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Revelation. You know, let me just say we need a baptism of that kind of ignorance, if that's what it means. And let me just say quickly, there's no contradiction between higher learning and the power of the Holy Spirit. There is none. You don't have to choose. You can be present Fully alert. If, if God's given you a high capacity brain, you should pursue as much education as you as you desire. You can be the best trained, best informed, best studied person you can be. You don't have to choose. Having said that, listen to me carefully. If you do have to choose, if push comes to shove, choose the power of the Holy Spirit over any other capacity. Sometimes I find myself praying, God, I wish I was stronger. I wish I was smarter. I wish I was was more articulate. I wish I was more thoughtful. I wish I was more sensitive. You know, we're always just praying, I wish I was more of something. And sometimes, sometimes we wonder if we've got what it takes to do the mission God calls us to. I understand that. Here's the good news. God chooses weak. God chooses ignorant. God chooses unlearned. God chooses, God chooses folks who don't seem to be in the top echelon of, of capacity and potential. God actually goes out of his way to pick people like you and me to do these things so that he can demonstrate his power and his glory through that which is so weak. And he does that through the person and work and power of the Holy Spirit. So the church is above all else a supernatural instrument and invention of God that runs on supernatural power, and let me just let me just tie this up by saying, if you don't rely on and depend on the Holy Spirit in your life, you 're not going to make it because you don't have what it takes, and neither do I. We must depend on the presence and work, the counsel, guidance, comfort of the Holy Spirit. You can run for a while, listen, you might be successful in business. But listen to me, sooner or later, if you don't depend on God, you will fail in life. You may be successful in ministry. You may run well for a while, but you will fail. You'll fail at the level of your character, your maturity. You'll fail at the level of your heart, and you won't finish well. When the church fails to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it becomes just another organization. And there are churches all over the place Who, you know, hang out, hang out aside and say, here's the church, church of Christ, church of Jesus. Here we are. And they have long since stopped being the church. Because they long since stopped depending on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you can, you can support, you can fund a bunch of little league teams. Uh, You can have uh, chicken noodle dinners in the basement of your church and raise money for the food pantry. That's not the church. It's not the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's birthed by, sustained by a supernatural God and the person of the Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing I want to say. The church is a community of authentic love. Everyone say authentic love. Authentic. Acts 4.32, all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. The primitive church had a spirit of love and generosity about it. Worth noting. And, and so having noted that, let me just remind you that God never looks on the outside of a person. He always looks at the inside of a person. There are lots of ways that you can judge people from the outside, and we do it commonly, and it's not a good idea. You cannot judge a book by its cover. You have to you have to realize that God always is looking on the inside of a person, not on the outside of a person. And the reason I mention that is because sometimes we get critical, we get judgmental uh, around people who look different. And it's just not a good, it's just not a good practice. And of course, in today's world, you mean, you you got body modifiers and tattooists and, you know, piercings and, and hair, you know, every color of, of the sky. And, and it's just, You know, you just wonder, what's going on? Well, you don't have to wonder about that because people people are not perceived through the eyes of God by how they look like on the outside. Aren't you happy about that? He always looks at our heart and our character and our submission to him. So you can't judge a man's heart by, by his outward appearance. And I mention it also because it's easy to offend people when you make point of the way they look. And there's no good reason to offend someone because of, the, because of something you disapprove of in their appearance unnecessarily. It doesn't lead to any good. And so just be, be careful with that if you can. Uh, the, the real issue is who's going to love the most? That's the biggest question. The great work of the Holy Spirit inside of a person is the work of love. If God is love, indeed perfect love, then when I say breathe on me breath of God, fill me with your presence fill me with your Holy Spirit, what am I really praying for? I mean, if you're praying for a a Pentecostal blessing, and you base that on Acts chapter 2, and you're thinking, well, there'll be tongues of fire, and there'll be uh, wind blowing, and special languages being spoken, and all kinds of pyrotechnics, you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, or maybe I want goosebumps to run up and down my spine or want to feel God's presence in a unique and special way. Listen, you can, you can expect that sort of thing, and I guess that's all right. But, the, but in reality, the person asking for an infusion of the Holy Spirit in their life is asking for the very character and nature of God to become real to them. God do in me that which will make me pleasing in your sight. We pray that kind of prayer, and then we ask, well, what does that actually mean? The baptism in the Holy Spirit is an infusion of the character of God, which is essentially a baptism of love. It changes that which I love. It changes the direction of my love. It changes the character and witness of my love, the way I express it in the world. I don't know about you. I've seen Christians who claim, who claim all kinds of spirituality, and this happens sometimes in in tra- spiritual traditions that are, you know, with lots of rules and regulations. So people are all careful about how modest they appear and how modest they behave and speak and, and you know, they, they, they never step out of line that you can discern and they're careful to keep, hold each other accountable to the rules that they've agreed on together. But I've run into some of these folks and from time to time, people who seem to be the most pious, the most holy looking at least, can be mean as rattlesnakes, What is going on there? Is it possible to become so religious, so narrow, so constricted, so judgmental that you're no longer loving people? And when your prayers for people outside of the faith become anger-based and resentful-based, that's a sign. Our first prayer should always be help me to love, help me to be kind and gracious and gentle and merciful. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible for a Christian full of the Holy Spirit to be loving and gracious and merciful and kind and at the same time hold firmly to the convictions that we believe about life and practice? The answer is yes. Yes, of course we can. Of course it's possible. You know, something's wrong when when you can resist sin, but you have a brittle or mean personality. And you go around being judgmental and proud and arrogant and defiant. I mean, where's the line that you draw where you just won't love that person who's on the other side of that line? Is it based on their skin color or their culture or their age or their gender or their LGBT? BTQ status, or maybe they're in a same-sex marriage, where is the line for you? How many of you have heard the the term furry? You know what a furry is. How many, if you know what furry is, raise your hand. How many people don't know what a furry is? These are the old people in the room. (laughs) I'm not trying to be funny about this. It's just another category in the world right now. A furry is typically a young person, not always, but typically a young person who identifies as an animal. You know, self-identification is a big deal right now. And so they identify as an animal. But, of course, they're a person, but they perceive themselves as an animal. Think, Think bugs Bunny. This is a good illustration. This is an anthropomorphic psychological condition that makes people believe they identify as an animal, although they're going through the world as a human being. So think Bugs Bunny. You know, he's a cartoon character, he's not real, but he's a rabbit, but he behaves, he moves around, and he talks and interacts like a human. Bugs Bunny. You know, it's like Yogi Bear. And so, and so th- this kind of psychology is happening in our world today, so, and, the, and these kids are identifying as an animal. Again, this is not, I'm not making any fun of this at all. Just to tell you the fact that there are school systems now across the country in various places that are putting litter boxes in restrooms. So these kids will have a place to go. Where do you draw the line? When do you stop loving people? I was, in, I was in a meeting a few years ago. There was a group of high-level Methodist leaders in the room, a handful of bishops, and we were in round tables having a discussion. And one of the questions that came up was simply this, is there anyone we should exclude from being part of, of Methodist churches? It was an interesting discussion. That's a good question, isn't it? Is anyone excluded? And so we're going around the table, and, and, of course, one of the marketing strategies that was prevalent in the Methodist church at the time was oh, that we are open-minded, open-hearted, uh, open hearts, open doors, open minds. Open minds, open hearts, open doors. So it, g- it gives the impression we're just open. And so the question was, you know, are same-sex married couples welcome? Of course. Are LGBTQ folks welcome? Yes, indeed. And then someone asked a very perceptive question at that particular table, and they said, this is when Donald Trump was in the White House, is Donald Trump welcome in our churches? (laughs) There was a visceral response. And before she could take enough time to think about her answer, a woman bishop in the Methodist church blurted out, no, He's not welcome in our churches. Okay, now we know where your line is, where you stop loving people. Let me put this statement on the screen for you. It is better to be loving than to be right. Do you agree? This is my statement. You don't have to agree with me. It's better to be loving than to be right. It's better to be merciful than to be mean-spirited and judgmental. You agree? I think so. Jesus, so with his disciples, he had the boys with him, and he walked up one day, and he was hungry for a fig, and he saw a fig tree in the distance. They walked, he walked over to the fig tree. It was the season for figs. Trees should be producing figs. But he got to the tree, and there were no figs, and it irritated him, so he cursed the tree. And the next day, the boys were going by, and one of the boys noticed that the tree was dead. (laughs) This amazed the boys. Lord, that tree you cursed is dead. (laughs) Jesus goes, Think nothing about that. Just think nothing about that at all. And then he turned to him and said, But greater things will you do in my name. Greater things than I have done will you do in my name. Now, what could he have meant by that? How could it get greater than walking on water and raising the dead? And so he says greater things. I don't think Jesus was into quantifying his miracles. So what did he mean? I think this is what he meant. When Jesus was working a miracle on the earth, it was confined to his physical presence in that place in the moment. He's in an earth suit. He can only be one place at one time. And so he can perform a miracle in his immediate presence. And so, so Jesus is saying that... My idea is for the whole world, that there needs to be a kingdom manifested everywhere. I mean, at the same time Jesus is walking on water and raising the dead, in first century Britain, which becomes becomes Great Britain in history, in the first century, folks in that part of the world were painting their faces blue and worshiping rocks, total pagans. So what about a kingdom witness for them in the first century? Jesus said greater things. Jesus wants a worldwide harvest. The only way to have a harvest of Jesus is to present an authentic presentation of Jesus among every people in the earth. The only way to have a worldwide harvest of Jesus in character, nature, power, authority, goodness, and love is to plant Jesus which implies that everywhere you go, Jesus goes. Everywhere you speak, every touch you make is the touch of God. Every church we plant is a presentation, an implantation of Jesus himself in that particular community. Now, Jesus, we know today, is dead, buried, raised, ascended to heaven, has now been resurrected in and through the person of his Holy Spirit, in and through us as his representative in the world it's a big deal. It's a big responsibility. It's a big calling. It, it, it's a big mandate. And God said, go into all the world and I'll be with you. That's why he told the disciples at the end of, end of his life and before the ascension, he said, listen, don't, don't try to fulfill this mandate to go to the world and preach the gospel and make disciples until you have an experience with the Holy Spirit. That's why I said, wait, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, because you don't dare attempt this in your own strength. And that's what they did. I don't want a lost and confused generation to look into my eyes and see condemnation and judgment and fear and rejection. I want them to see the love of God manifested in the acceptance and love and forgiveness of God. Jesus was approached by a crowd one day. They had caught a woman in the act of adultery. So her innocence is not an option. She's guilty. They caught her. And so this crowd brings her to Jesus. And they want to try to trip up Jesus along the way. And Jesus deals with the crowd. And then he looks at this woman and he asks her a very simple question. He said, do you see any condemnation in my eyes? And it forced the woman to look at Jesus and she concluded i don't see any condemnation in your eyes and as soon as that was as soon as that was confirmed then jesus said to her your sins are forgiven go and sin no more do you see the sequence it's a very important important sequence the word of forgiveness is spoken first with authority First, there's love. First, there's acceptance. Then the word of restoration. First, I I do not condemn you. I love you. Now I forgive you and I restore you. That's the sequence. Now listen to this statement. The word of forgiveness spoken with authority will set the captives free. You know people in your life, in your family, in your world who are bound and are broken, and are hopeless, and they're stumbling and staggering through life. And the word that will liberate them is a word without the condemnation, without without the judgment, and filled with the love of God, acceptance of God, and the mercy of God. And once you have a, a, a condition where it's safe and trusting, then you can pronounce the hope that Jesus alone can provide. Your sins are forgiven. You can be restored. God will save your life. I think it'll set every captive free in the world if we can authentically represent the love of God. We cannot commission our society to live like Jesus and still they see love reflected in our attitudes, first in our actions. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a baptism in love. There's no way I can make myself right with God from the outside in. There's no way I can make myself loving from the outside in. There's no way I can be the kind of loving person that God calls me to be by my own efforts. You know, you, it's a nose to the grindstone, you know, shoulder to the wheel. You can't do that. You know, I'm going I'm to love my spouse this week if it kills me. That doesn't work. You need God's help. Let me make this statement. I want to put it on the screen too. The unresolved gap between what we say and how we live is the crevice into which people are falling in today's culture. The separation between what we preach and what we practice creates, creates confusion and questions in the mind of people who need the love of God the most. They fall into a crevice created by our hypocrisy in this area. So we need to pray the Holy Spirit will fill us with his character and his nature so that we can love authentically so that the word we preached has authority and can set the captive free so don't ask if you know if avoiding major issues of sin if that's it that's that's actually the easy part that's that's not really hard that that's basic that's fundamental that's kindergarten level spirituality what do you mean well i don't murder steal or pillage good for you it's impressive Way to go. Now, for some folks, not murdering, stealing, or pillaging is a progress. I understand. But I assume I'm not talking to that group today. Rather than asking, do you murder, steal, or pillage? How about these questions? Do you obey your parents? Do you treat your children with respect? Are you kind? Do you love those outside of the faith? Do you love those folks who not only are outside of the faith, but you find hard to love? Does my heart break for those who are yet to know who Jesus is? The Holy Spirit authentically displayed will be evidenced by the gifts of the Spirit and more importantly by the fruit of the Spirit. Let me put this statement on the screen. You cannot make yourself loving any more than you can make yourself good. In the Depression years, uh, down on his luck, a, a man, this is in the 1930s in America, a guy down on his luck went to a local circus and asked for a job. And hope against hope, he really didn't expect anything, but the manager said, thank God we were desperate for someone, you're hired. And he offered him this great salary at the peak of the Great Depression. He said, what's the job? Well, over uh, the, the last few days, our most favorite act was with a gorilla. And unfortunately, the gorilla died. And we can't afford to buy another gorilla, but we have a gorilla suit. And all we want you to do is put on the suit and pretend to be a gorilla. The man said, I don't want to be a gorilla. That's so humiliating. The manager said, well, if you don't need the salary, it's up to you. The man swallowed his pride and did the act. First night, the people loved him. He was better than the real gorilla. And the man really began to get into it. He liked doing the gorilla act. You know, the people would cheer and scream with great delight. They'd throw bananas at him. He'd bang against the cage. It was a huge success. Then he devised another part of the act. He would swing on a rope out over the lion's cage, and he would swing out over the lion's cage and chatter at the lion. And the lion would just get enraged and leaping up, but the man measured the rope very carefully, and no matter how high the lion leapt, he couldn't catch him. Oh, the people loved it. One night, he decided to take a rolled-up newspaper with him so he could swing out over the lion, and when he did so, he could swat the lion on the nose. He knew the people would go crazy. So the problem was that just as he swung out with the newspaper, he had to let go with one of his hands, and he fell right down into the lion's cage. The old lion jumped up on him, put both paws on both of his shoulders, leaned down in his face, and just roared. The man in the gorilla suit began to scream, Help! Somebody help me! Get me out of here! Help me! Help me! The lion leaned down and whispered to him and said, Shut up, you fool. You're going to get us both fired. <laughs> now, here's the point. What passes for about 90% of spirit-filled religion in America is nothing but dress up Christianity. Dress up like a Christian, play church. I'll say it again. The great evidence of the Holy Spirit is a changed life. That's the great evidence. The authentic church will be so full of the love of God that people will be drawn to it like a magnet. And an authentic expression, listen, I, let, me, let me just say this. If Jesus himself walked into this room right now and you thought maybe that's Jesus, but you weren't quite sure, how long do you think it would take before you found yourself just moving toward him? My wife is the most amazing creature in this regard. She's been through a lot in her life, and she has allowed God to bring healing to her life and her and her body and her spirit and her emotions and her relationships. Um, it's been remarkable. She is full of the Spirit of God, and she gravitates. I. She comes home, and I, if I've known she's been out running errands or... or going from place to place in social settings. She comes home, and I just, sometimes I don't ask. Sometimes she just tells me. Sometimes I ask, how many people did you talk to today? Just like that. And I know she's been places where she didn't really know people. She's just going from store to store, shop to shop, whatever. And she'll say something like, ah, th- three, three main events today. I said, give me the highlight. She'll say, well, I was reaching for a, a gallon of milk, at the grocery store, and a woman walks up to me. She's all sad in the face, and I say to her, are you okay? And she bursts into tears, and she tells me her story. You know, it's my husband, my kids, my health, some story. Everyone's got a story. And Beth reassures her, comforts her. May I pray for you? Yes, would you please? She prays for people. Thank you so much. This has changed my day. I'm encouraged, thank you. Beth comes home. It's amazing. I think an authentic heart of God's love will be like a magnet to people. Moving toward us. Interesting. Beth begged me not to tell this little joke, uh, but I, but I, I do it not because you will find it funny, but because I find it hilarious. And so this is in the context of entertaining myself. I've been talking all morning. I'm tired of hearing myself. And so this will be fun for me, even though you won't laugh. Two skunks were walking by an old paper mill. It's short. Two skunks were walking by an old paper mill. One said to the other, what is that smell? His friend said, I don't know, but I need to get me some. (laughs) That's funny. And I don't care who you are. That's hilarious. But I knew you wouldn't get it. So, those those four of you who got it, you know, just share it with people on the way out. It'll help them. There should be an attraction, though, to the fragrance of the spirit-filled life. Don't you agree? There's a sweet perfume that will soften maybe the most hardened hearts, the most wounded soul. The Holy Spirit will breathe love into the individual and the community. Love is the highest calling. Love is the greatest work. It is a product of a life surrender to the Holy Spirit. I hope you, I think you're getting it. Last point, I'm, I'm going to go quickly now. The church expects the miraculous presence of Christ. This is something that we observe. The, this is not just a conviction to the supernatural, not just a conviction to love, but in Christ in us who helps us do these things. Again, back to John and Peter at the Gate Beautiful. He says, he says to this man, look at us. And we, we ask, well, what could he mean? Maybe he's saying, look upon us, we have great faith, and if you can gain some of the faith that we have, you can be healed. Faith for your healing. Or maybe Peter is saying, you think you're crippled? I was crippled. The, the Savior of the world, my Lord and my God, Jesus, when he hung on a cross all alone, I ran for fear of my life. I was hunkered down on a dark corner somewhere so so the bad guys wouldn't get me too. You think think you're crippled. I was crippled, crippled in my faith, crippled in my loyalty, crippled in my commitment, crippled in my friendship. But God rescued me. God forgave me and God healed me and God gave me a purpose and a mission in life, one that I didn't deserve. I was lost and undone and unreliable, but God made a way for me, and now here I am. Look at us. Look at us. It's a powerful moment. Perhaps it meant they were aware of the presence of Christ in them, who is the hope of glory. Maybe they knew in ways that perhaps we have forgotten that the only way the world is going to see Jesus is through us, through us. There ought to be a way that we can say to the poor and the confused and the doomed and the damned the whole world around us going crazy, hey, look at us. We have Christ who is the hope of glory and he can be your hope as well. Praise God. You're shaken, hurting, confused, weak, disoriented. People wandering around in the debris-filled air of our modern times, confusion, The nightmare of a world that is hurling at them all kinds of ideas, categories, darkness all around. Can you hear them? Doesn't anybody know anything? Can't someone help me find my way? Can't someone help me find God? In moments just like these, people look for answers. They look for hope. And we should be able to say to a broken and distressed world, look on us. And if our love is authentic enough as the Holy Spirit forms it in us, not only can we look at a world in desperate need, hey, look at us, but when they do, we can also say, now rise up and be healed. Rise up and be healed. Rise up and walk. Rise up from there and get on with the higher purposes and plan of God for your life. That's what the world's looking for and that's the opportunity that we have. The supernatural invention, the supernatural sustenance of the Holy Spirit's work in the church, a community and relationships based in love, a personal presence of Christ within, the hope of glory. These are some of the things that make a life or a church or a school or a business or an individual spirit filled. It's not about style. It's not about dress code, not about music, not about rules and regulation, not about circumstantial superficial stuff. Christ in you, the hope of glory is also the hope of the entire world. The world needs spirit-filled, full-grown, mature Christians who can say with a calmness born of that inner presence of God's Spirit, look on us. Jesus is here. The Holy Spirit is present. Be forgiven. Be healed. Be healed in Jesus' name. The witness of the Word, which I have just, just, just described, is what people in our world are longing for. And so may God fill us with his Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. All right, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that the book of Acts will be real in our lives. Beyond the issues of style or the things that tend to separate us. We pray that the presence of the Holy Spirit will rest on us for love and power and ministry through the presence of Christ. So God, we need you. We long for you, and the people around us are longing to see you in us. The world waits, and we are not bright enough, smart enough, gifted enough, not strong enough. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. Could I encourage you with the words of prayer today? Could I, could I ask you maybe to pray this prayer after me, if you're sincere about receiving the Holy Spirit today? Let me give you some words to pray. You, you pray them after me, maybe just loud enough for your own ears to hear, just within yourself. Pray these words. Are you ready? Holy Spirit, touch me. Fill me. Use me. Baptize me in love. Cleanse me. Fill me. Fill me with your power. Awaken your gifts in me. Do your work in me. Anyway, anyhow. I don't want to sleep through the most amazing events in history. Whatever you did in the book of Acts, do through me. I don't have to understand it all. I just want in on it. I receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, we pray that you will hear our prayers. And thank you, God, for your work among us. In Jesus' name and for his sake. And everyone said amen. Would you stand with us?